Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 5th, 2022. Um, lots of news over the weekend, some worse than others. One rather, I wouldn't call it tragic, but certainly not very important. Optimistic news is about the way in which homelessness, uh, inflation is making homelessness worse, compounding homelessness, which of course is another of the pandemics, certainly ravaging American cities. There was an interesting piece in the Washington Post from Sunday, which personalizes it. When you see the pictures of homeless people, of homeless families, of kids, uh, it certainly makes it more troubling. Some people might suggest that the post ran a feature on white middle class looking families perhaps is uh, not necessarily the fairest way of running these sorts of series. But nonetheless, it certainly brings home how homelessness now seems in American cities to affect everyone, that people are living in their cars, living in this tents, um, Living in San Francisco, of course, we're aware of this every day. All you have to do is go out in the street and you see armies of homelessness, uh, not just in San Francisco, throughout the Bay Area and California. Uh, there's a lot of politics around this. Um, uh, I saw an interesting piece by Max Holleran, who's an academic who specializes in cities and homelessness. He had a piece uh, from March uh, of this year on cities and homelessness and Holleran connects local politics, local policies with the growth of homelessness. A lot of this is bound up in the clash between the NIMBYs, not in my backyard, and the YIMBYs, particularly in California, yes, in my backyard. Uh, and Holleran now has a book, Yes to the City, Millennials and the Fight for Affordable Housing, which focuses on this struggle between NIMBYs and YIMBYs and talks about the ways to actually um, confront homelessness uh, in our cities. Uh, Max is joining us from Bristol uh, in the UK, where he's attending a conference. Uh, he teaches at the University of Melbourne, but he's originally from uh, the US. Max, did you grow up in a city? I did. I grew up um, in Colorado and um, in Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, was your childhood affected by your urban existence? Do you feel that the Max Holleran who grew up, the adult Max Holleran, uh, is a consequence of your urban experiences? Absolutely. I spent most of my childhood in Boulder, Colorado, which I have a chapter about in the book. It's an absolutely stunningly beautiful place with amazing hiking trails um, very good transportation, um, but it has really said no to growth um, and densification, forcing many people to live um, in commuter suburbs that are pretty far away from the center of the city, um, which is a situation that you see in many um, attractive cities um, that have high livability. Right. And I, um, I brought my kids up in Berkeley. I went to grad school at Berkeley. Berkeley, like Boulder, in fact, Boulder's often joked as the the color, the Berkeley of the mountains uh, in Colorado, 
there's an interesting piece in The Atlantic uh, from February of this year about NIMBYism reaching its apotheosis in Berkeley, full of left-leaning, wealthy academic types and investment bankers who buy their homes and, and don't want the in-development. Are these people, um, Max, are they just simply selfish? Do they understand the paradox, the absurdity of their position as wealthy progressives now who are against all forms of development and compounding homelessness and suffering? I think they understand it. And I think that there is a pretty valid viewpoint, which is that um, they want to see new housing that will truly serve the most disadvantaged. They don't want to just build new market rate apartments. Um, at the same time, it is an irony that some of the, the sort of most progressive places in the US are very regressive when it comes to new construction of housing. Um, and they really say no at every opportunity when it comes to building denser housing that would address middle-class and working-class housing needs. Boulder and Berkeley are perfect examples of that. And of course, San Francisco, on the one hand, you have these images in the Tenderloin, uh, which are really shocking. Uh, many of these images people have seen before. And on the other hand, people's minds, of course, of San Francisco, of an extremely beautiful and expensive city. I live uh, in a nicer part of San Francisco. And one of the things that strikes me is we have a neighbor on our street who um, is strongly against having signs um, limiting parking because he believes that it might undermine property values. How much of this nimbyism, uh, Max, is bound up in people's obsession with the value of their homes? People have their home as their main asset in the US. The federal government has always encouraged that um, through some very bizarre calculation of mortgage taxation, which is um, really favors people with money um, to pay for expensive homes and encourages people to buy the most expensive home they possibly can. Um, and that disadvantages renters at every stage um, of the process, whether it's um, finding an apartment at a suitable rent price, or paying their taxes. Um, we have huge problems in cities like San Francisco. And I think that while homelessness is something that's very visible um, and that people can really look at and say, we're in a crisis, um, part of what's happened is that the housing crisis has morphed from something that previously affected uh, working class people, people who were in jeopardy of losing their home and now also has a huge middle class component. Well, the ex-middle class, and that's that's what I led with at the beginning uh, for people watching. You can see these images of white, conventionally white middle class people, a mother and her two children who have become homeless, living in their car, living in, um, uh, living in uh, hostels. How much of this, Max, is bound up in race and our unwillingness to acknowledge the crisis until it actually hits white middle class people? White, at least people who appear middle class, the, the idea of a middle class, of course, is increasingly uh, disappearing, problematic in America. Yeah, I think that absolutely it's bound up in race. I think that it's a problem that becomes more visible when it's people who are white, people who are college educated, um, people who formerly had middle-class jobs, and in fact, people who still have um, middle-class jobs or service sector jobs. Um, people That's who the astonishing thing. Sorry to jump in, Max. Yeah. 
is, is people are working during the day. They've got, as you say, service sector jobs, probably relatively low paid, but not minimum wage. And, and they and they and they still remain homeless. Yeah, housing precarity in San Francisco is that bad that people are sleeping on couches, they're sleeping in their car, um, they're super commuters going two hours each direction, um, still working, but do not have a consistent place to sleep at night. The Times, which loves to cover these sorts of uh, stories, uh, had a piece about a woman called Susan Kirsch. Uh, 78-year-old woman who lives in Marin County, just to the north of San Francisco. Uh, They entitled the piece Twilight of the NIMBY and featured her and said that, uh, quoting her, she's a a Sierra Club member with a pesticide-free garden. She has an Amnesty International sticker on her front window and a photograph on her refrigerator of herself and hundreds of other people spelling tax the 1% on a beach. Are the Susan Kirsch's of the world, are they just the kind of characters that the New York Times like to cover or are they a a seriously big problem? Uh, Yes, they are a problem. Um, One of the issues is that uh, a lot of people don't want to see development um, in their backyard unless it's something that's, you know, all public housing or some sort of idealized um, housing uh, solution. Um, that will really help uh, people who are homeless, who are um, really experiencing precarity. Um, But the truth is there needs to be many different levels of housing built. We have an overall housing shortage in almost all categories. Um, And that means also uh, private development. That means that developers, as much as many people hate them, will have to be given the green light to build um, housing, some of which will be market rate. Um, That's what a lot of the yes in my backyard people are fighting for. Um, and in many places, it makes a lot of sense. The caveat to that is, of course, um, how much um, affordable housing will be in new construction and who will it serve? How fast can it possibly reduce um, the prices of housing uh, when it comes to scale in certain cities? So those are, those are big caveats. At the same time, people who are living in areas like Berkeley and who see themselves as being in a sort of mini village where nothing will ever change are really not recognizing the privilege they have of living immediately adjacent to a major American city um, and thinking that everything can be single family homes forever Um, because it can't be that way. Um, It's not economically sustainable. um, It's not healthy socially. And it's also not very good for the environment if we want to encourage people to use Mass transit. Right. And I I wanted to come to mass transit. When you see these images, one of the saddest things is that people living in their cars. And of course, this is both a cause and an effect of this tragic situation. Uh, One of the things that I always remember about Marin County, where uh, Susan Kirsch lives, just this, this, uh, this neighborhood, a very expensive neighborhood, just over the Golden Gate Bridge to the north of San Francisco, is that uh, people in Marin voted against the extension of the BART public transportation uh, train, uh, suburb, uh, regional train, uh, because I, I don't know whether they, a lot of people have interpreted it as race-based, that they didn't want kids from Oakland, in other words, African-American kids, coming over the bridge. Um, how much of this crisis, uh, Max, is bound up, in, particularly in America, in deep, cultural and political opposition to public transportation? A lot of it. 
a lot of the issues have to do with a massive um, divestment in public transit. Um, we have an incredibly antiquated uh, train system in, in most of the country um, that has not been updated for decades, perhaps even a generation, you could say. Um, and also part of it is that in most places in the US, um, whether it's racism or simply economic self-interest, we've hoarded our resources into certain communities. We've made sure that certain communities have excellent schools while adjacent communities have very bad schools. And part of that is an unwillingness to share. Um, you know, you can pick whether that is a legacy of the 1960s and 70s and suburbanization fueled by racism or whether it's just a sort of more simple uh, greediness. Um, but some of the nicest places to live don't want to let other people come there. At the same time, um, some of the worst poverty in the US is actually in uh, communities that are only, uh, only accessible by car um, because it is attractive to live near transit because we're building so little of it. And so people um, who live by train stations, by uh, high-speed transit, are actually in a more favorable position to access work and to access leisure places um, than people who are living in the farthest out suburbs and oftentimes are the most disadvantaged and they need to get everywhere by car. It's a bad situation, as you said. Um, California, apparently, according to our local newspaper from last week, the San Francisco Chronicle, is cracking down on NIMBY housing delays. But then the question is asked by the newspaper, and it's always the same question, why are major projects in San Francisco and Oakland still stalled? I mean, this issue has even reached Davos of all places. The World Economic Forum this year asked, there's a desperate need for housing. So why isn't more being built? Is it simply a question of public finance or is it a political, a broader and more complicated political issue, Matt? It's a broader and more complicated political issue. Um, zoning has been a major handicap um, in uh, cities building uh, housing across the United States. Um, with a lot of density activism, those things are starting to go away. You see cities like Minnesota, uh, which are ending single family zoning, um, which they've had for years. Uh, at the same time, um, it is definitely hard to line up financing um, for apartments at a reasonable price point. As many people in major American cities know, it's much easier to get luxury housing built um, than it is to have uh, kind of a middle class or mixed housing built. Um, but one of, the main, um, one of the main problems, of course, has been zoning. I think that's a problem that many municipalities are willing to tackle now because of the political pressure that's been put on them. To what extent is this a cultural problem? To your own interesting piece a couple of years ago about um, the way in which we've rejected the idea of the, the small town, Sinclair Lewis's small town, now you write or you wrote, today small towns are ridiculed as cultural and economic backwaters where the Walmart parking lot is the Agora. Um, it sort of reminded me of these images now of small town in, in Highland, uh, Highland Park, um, Chicago, this catastrophic, tragic shooting yesterday. What is it about, in particular, the American imagination or perhaps lack of cultural imagination that has resulted in people thinking less and less of small towns, of not wanting to be there, of wanting to come to, quote, unquote, the city, which, as you suggested, isn't really a city. 
It's a fragmentation of villages increasingly feudalized by extreme wealth and poverty. Well, I think that once we had smaller towns that had a lot of economic functions and really vibrant social spaces, they had a high street, as they say in the UK and in Australia, which had um, you know major businesses up and down uh, the center of this town, um, and they had you know cafes, they had restaurants. Um, now a lot of those businesses have been subsumed into shopping malls. And small business owners find it difficult um, to be in those smaller towns. Um, not to mention, there's a lot of places uh, where you don't even have sidewalks to walk on the street, and it's very dangerous to live a life as a pedestrian there. But the main reason is really not cultural. The main reason that people don't want to be in secondary cities or in small towns is they're going to earn a lot less. So there's reasons why people want to be in Manhattan and not in Buffalo, New York. There's reasons why people want to be um, not in Gary, Indiana, but in Chicago, which is that we've had a huge um, sort of growing inequality between regional cities and larger cities. Um, and so people are moving for economic opportunities as well as cultural preferences. Yeah, and this is so sad and ironic because we were promised by the internet that everyone would be free to live wherever they wanted. We were promised during COVID that everyone could work from home uh, and therefore it would change the nature of the city. But if anything, it's only resulted in more dominance, a winner-take-all urban world where the only places people want to live are San Francisco and New York and London and Berlin. Yeah, I mean, I think that during COVID, there was there was a moment where people said, you know, I, I should go explore living in a place that's closer to nature, living in a place of cheaper housing prices, and maybe I can just continue my career online. That doesn't seem like it's going to happen. It seems like businesses are unwilling to have people continue to commute from digitally commute. Um, it also seems like there's some growing regional issues that are both economic and cultural. I mean, people may potentially not want to work in a Dallas um, or a Baton Rouge anymore because they're going to be in a state that doesn't allow abortions and they want to go work in a Denver um, or a Boston, Massachusetts. Um, so I think that you will still see the primacy of these big expensive cities um, for a mixture of reasons, both cultural and also the nature of work. Um, I think that we were kind of fooling ourselves for a moment that everyone will be able to work from their living room. I think that people don't like that themselves because there's a kind of sacredness of the home where working there feels wrong and it combines these two worlds that people prefer to separate. I think also that companies don't want their employees to not be in a workplace because it's harder um, to keep them productive, exert control, and to develop a culture around around work, around a kind of collective identity uh, within a company or institution. Not all is bad news, though, Max. Um, your, your book, Yes to the City, Millennials and the Fight for Affordable Housing, suggests that there is a generational break. Um, did a little bit of research before this conversation. Somebody at Harvard suggests that millennials aren't leaving cities, but uh, sorry, uh, millennials are leaving cities, but young adults are not. Is this a generational issue? Are 
younger people, whether they're millennials or Gen Xers or Gen Yers, are they fighting back? Do they get it? Or are they simply prisoners of economic and cultural circumstance and really don't have much choice these days? I do think that the choices that we have are not just cultural. They're very much premised on where investments were made. People didn't just go to the suburbs because they loved the white picket fence and the house with the yard. They went there because the federal government invested billions and billions of dollars um, in subsidized mortgages, in highways, in infrastructure. However, I think that people do miss being around others. They miss the ability to walk and pick up a, a pint of milk at the corner store. Um, they don't want to have to get in the car all the time. They want to know their neighbors. And I think that it's not just you know um, millennials and Gen Z. I think that you also um, have people who are in the baby boom generation who want to retire in a city because they understand that when their mobility is limited, they want to be around places they can walk to when they lose the ability to drive, for instance. Um, so I think that it's not necessarily something that's so generational, but a growing recognition that American culture has embraced suburbanism too much and that we need to start making uh, tighter, more compact and dense cities um, and that we have the ability to do so. So I think that people are recognizing that living in an apartment is not the worst thing in a world in the world. And I think that that's something that, you know, it sounds crazy for people outside of the US, um, but many of the people I spoke to in the book said, you know, it's actually very, uh, it's very problematic to tell people I have kids and I live in an apartment because that scene is something that's kind of, you know, well, you must be really struggling or your life must be really bad. Um, and there's people who don't want apartments in their neighborhoods because they don't want apartment people. And you can decode that however you want, but I think that um, there is a new generation of people who will accept living in an apartment and even enjoy it. Uh, Max, uh, one of the reviews uh, of your book um, in the LA Review of Books, I think they enjoyed the book, but they, they thought there was an element of humor about this Yimby versus Nimby argument, sort of a, an inside the beltway, a classic Berkeley, San Francisco, Boulder style conversation amongst liberals. In, in your experience, what, it, it seems obvious to me, and certainly in the way you're putting this argument, that the Yimby argument is better than the NIMBY argument. That whilst we might respect women like Susan Kirsch or understand her position, it's an absurd argument. What did you learn in the research and the writing of your book to strengthen the, the Yimby argument and to question NIMBYism without mocking it or undermining it? I think that in many ways we need to respect nimbyism because it's the you know nimbyism is grassroots uh, organizing nimbyism is a basic premise of self-interest which is people want to protect what they have and they want their community to contain you know the networks that they grew up with and that they've come to appreciate i think that one thing that nimbyism has really given us is a new language to talk about what urban planners call new urbanism to talk about living near transit, to talk about walking, um, and to have um, you know, greater development that's beyond the single family home. Um, at the same time, you know, this debate between NIMBYs and YIMBYs is very much a kind of um, 
argument within the left, the left of the Democratic Party. It takes place in very progressive cities um, and it is an argument between people who don't want to build um, and people who do want to build. Um, and it has divided people generationally um, and it's also divided people um, who often share the same opinion about larger national issues. I should also say that one right. of the... You know, so really what, where does, uh, sorry to jump in here, Max. So so in San Francisco, it's left liberals arguing against moderate liberals, which is an endless and annoying conversation here. Where are conservatives? Where's the Where are the Trump people on all this? Well, there are some conservative Yimbis for sure. There, I mean, Yimbyism is a is a. I would not say it's a left liberal. I would say it's a it's a centrist liberal tendency that brings together real estate developers, urban planners, activists. Um, to do something that's very pro-market. It's not, um, you know, it's not part of the socialist uh, liberal camp at all. It's not AOC whatsoever. In fact, it has a tremendous amount of criticism from people who are concerned with gentrification um, and, and who are very skeptical about the possibility of private development to serve low-income people. I think that, um, you know, what, what you get in this sense is, is a, uh, is a kind of movement that's very good at publicizing urban planning ideas, um, but is is it, it kind of flirts with the larger question of how much regulation you should have. On one hand, there are people who are within the YIMBY movement and who say we need to have affordability mandates and we need to have inclusionary zoning. On the other hand, there are people who are much more libertarian and say, you know, getting rid of single family homes is just one thing we need to do um, to address zoning and uh, urban urban laws around, uh, around planning and um, uh, and development more broadly. So it is, it is a very interesting and sometimes uh, complex, strange bedfellows kind of situation. It certainly is when it comes to strange uh, bedfellows. Um... Max, what about the issue of public space? You mentioned earlier that many Americans are uncomfortable with admitting that they live in apartments. I don't think that's true in New York. But then, of course, New York has Central Park. Might not be true of San Francisco. San Francisco has Golden Gate Park. Europe, the great European cities, London and Berlin, they have wonderful public space, which enables people, uh, Paris the same, it enables people to live in, in, in smaller places. How much of this crisis is bound up in the absence of public space in many uh, American cities? We're not doing a good job with public space. On one hand, people want private spaces that are convenient. They want a backyard rather than a park. Um, and that's just about you know where they can let their dog out, where they can have their kids play. On the other hand, we are increasingly worried about other people. So sharing a park with someone, um, you know, used to mean, I think 20 years ago, you know, what if they play loud music? What if they start smoking marijuana? You know, that, that was the kind of level of fear. Now, you know, six people just got shot at a public parade on a public street uh, in Northern Chicago. So we have much more existential fears about what it means to share space with other people. Yeah, I think uh, it's one of the it's one of the more tragic and absurd consequences of this epidemic of uh, gun 
in insanity that people are increasingly scared to go out of their own homes, although most of the gun deaths, of course, take place within the home. Finally, um, Max, this is an interesting conversation. I had Edward Glazer, one of America's leading uh, urbanists, experts on cities, um, on the show recently. He, of course, is the, sh- the author of Triumph of the City. He's also the author of Survival of the City, ironically, and another interesting book. He co-authored Urban Empires, Cities as Global Rulers in the New Urban World. Lots of talk about cities and their increasing economic and political significance. Could this fit in with the reappearance of city-states, of Singapore-like entities around the world? Yeah, absolutely. You see cities that are increasingly making all kinds of economic policies, social policies on their own. You see cities that even have international policies. Um, Cities in the United States are leading the the fight against climate change, um, and they want to make their own policy because of the tremendous ineptitude and stasis at the state and national level. And they probably will continue doing so until something else changes. It's good stuff. Uh, your your new book, um, uh, Max, Yes to the City, Millennials and the Fight for Affordable Housing is certainly an important book in this fight uh, between NIMBYism and, uh, and YIMBYism. You seem relatively open-minded on which one's right. You do care about the city. My favorite book recently on the city was... Uh, one by Ben Wilson. Um, uh, he, he's written a book called Metropolis, A History of the City, Humankind's Greatest Invention. I'm very much of an urban dweller, and I agree with Ben. Are there other books on cities, um, Max, that you would encourage people to read in addition to your new book, Yes to the, to the City? Jane well, Jacobs, I assume, a classic on the city. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of great books um, that are nonfiction. I really like to read a, a good novel about uh, cities to sort of expand the ways I think about them. I really enjoyed reading uh, Ling Ma's Severance, which is a novel about a pandemic, mostly in New York, but also takes place a bit in Shenzhen in China. Um, it has to do with global supply chains and with pandemics. And I found it to be a really brilliant look at the isolation that people feel when they're in a city despite being surrounded by so many people. And I really, I, I, it took me a while to actually embrace it, having lived through many days of lockdown in the pandemic in Melbourne. But once I decided that I was up for reading something a bit dystopian, I found it to be an absolutely amazing novel.